Welcome to On the Move, a podcast that explores the realities of migrants and refugees across the Middle East. On the Move is produced by BCARS, the Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies. Welcome back to On the Move, the BCARS podcast. After some time away, we are happy to be back with you in this space. BCARS continues to explore the personal journeys and experiences of refugees and migrants, and with ongoing support from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, we are able to continue those explorations and to expand them to a variety of other vulnerable communities across the Arab region. And now we will do so with a particular lens of citizenship. Questions of citizenship, nationality, identity, refugees, migrants, asylum seekers, Documented and undocumented workers, among others, are hot-button issues across the world, certainly here in the United States, across Europe, and definitely around the Middle East. Changing and flexible notions of citizenship are impacting the lives of many people who are on the move, as well as those who are not, across the Arab region today. Through this citizenship lens, we examine the lived experiences of individuals and communities who struggle for basic human, civil, and political rights. In addition to refugees and migrants, our focus includes stateless persons across the Arab region. Now, these include the Badoon, literally those without, i.e. without citizenship, and many other such stateless groups. Women across the region who are prohibited by law to confer nationality on their children or spouses. And of course, the millions of people across the region who, on paper, are citizens in their respective countries, but who in reality are not able to fully enjoy their normal or nominal citizenship rights. Today we look at another community who are generally forgotten. Forgotten by academics, the media, public policy analysts, and certainly host governments. I'm speaking about the children of migrants or the second generation of temporary immigrants, most of whom live in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Oman, Bahrain, but also who may be found elsewhere in the region. I'm not referring to the migrants themselves, who have jobs and are sponsored by their employers in the Gulf countries. I'm speaking of the children of those migrants, children ranging from very young through young adults who perhaps know of no other country than these Arab states and who may find it difficult and really impossible to identify with the countries their parents left, the country these children are also citizens of. They hold passports from those countries and thus they are citizens of those countries. But they may have never lived in those countries for longer than a few weeks at a time and they don't necessarily identify with those nationalities or those countries specifically. To help us all understand this community, I'm pleased to welcome to this podcast Nadia and Sumaya, both of whom grew up in Arab Gulf countries, but who can never legally call those countries their home. Nadia is a political science graduate student here in Boston, and Sumaya recently graduated with a degree in international politics in Dubai. We are not using last names for either of our guests out of an abundance of caution and respect for their privacy. By speaking with these two women today, we hope to raise awareness and deeper understanding about a situation that affects hundreds of thousands of other second-generation immigrants across the Arab region. Their stories are their own, yet they also offer us insights into the lives and struggles of many immigrants and their children across the Middle East. Nadia and Sumaya have been in conversations for many months now 
about their status as non-citizens of one particular Arab Gulf country. They've discussed and debated how this impacts their lives and how they conceptualize their own identities. And they are here with us today to share insights into their own challenges and struggles. Nadia, let's begin with you. First, a very warm welcome to On The Move, the B-Cars podcast. I'm so happy that we're actually having this conversation on our podcast. You and I have been talking about doing this for many months. And if you would, please share with us a bit about your personal background. First of all, thank you so much for wanting to speak with me. Like you said, we've been talking about this for over a semester Mm. now. So I'm glad that we're finally getting to do this. Me too. So yeah, a little bit about myself. I'm Nadia. And while I'm here in Boston now, I grew up in the Middle East. The first 11 years of my life, I was in Saudi Arabia. There was then a very brief stint in Singapore, but we moved back to Dubai immediately because my parents missed the Gulf terribly. Mm. And uh, that's where they still are, and that's where I go back home to. So Maya, I'm also very pleased to welcome you and thank you for joining us remotely as you and Nadia share your stories with our listeners. I understand you were born and raised in Dubai, and as you mentioned to me offline, you called it your home. Tell us more about your background, your life in Dubai, and what your legal status is there. Thanks so much for having me on, Bikars Dennis. Just like Nadia, this topic is definitely one that's very close to my heart, and I really appreciate the opportunity of getting to speak to you about it today. Dubai definitely is home to me. I was born in Dubai and went to school and university here, and I'm looking to work in the city as well. I've never actually lived anywhere else. The longest I've been away has probably been for a maximum of three weeks on vacation somewhere. My parents are both from India, but left the country over 30 years ago at this point. They first lived in Bahrain for a couple of years, but migrated to the UAE in 1989, and both of them have lived here ever since too. I think in many ways it's so difficult for Dubai not to be home for me because of this. It's so strange watching a city grow the way this one has in front of my very eyes. Growth and development at this exponential rate happen so rarely like it did and does here. The city is not all that large still. It's also littered with my memories. I often pass by the hospital I was born at, the kindergarten I went to, my high school, the first building my parents lived at when they first moved here. I think after a certain amount of time, it's almost impossible to not build the sort of attachment my family and I have to this city. I'm currently a resident of the UAE under the sponsorship of my father. The immigration system in the UAE works under what's called the kafala system, which is like many other Gulf countries over here, where residents are issued work visas and under the condition you make a certain amount of money, that sponsorship can be extended to your dependents. As such, my father's employer sponsors him and he sponsors me. Unfortunately, the problem with such work visas is that if one loses their job, they immediately lose their visa, as do their dependents, making living here precarious no matter how long you've lived here. And to give our audience some context, I'll ask you both to tell us how you started to explore this very topic and tell us more about the importance for you personally about this issue. This is a topic that is very dear to my heart. A question that I have struggled with my entire life is, where are you from or where is home? And I can't give everyone I meet the spiel I just gave you. Uh, oh, I moved from here to here <laughs> to here. And I started thinking about this question more deeply when I picked up this book called Temporary People by Deepak Uni Krishnan. I think it's a must read for every migrant kid in the Gulf. And the title, especially Temporary People, hit home because that aptly describes what we are. 
And then I took your class on citizenship in the Middle East, and I really wanted to explore this topic deeper because no matter how many years we've spent in this region, how we've contributed to the growth of the countries, the economies, we are at the mercy of the kafala sponsorship system. So tomorrow if the government says, pack up your bags and go, we have no choice but to abide. And maybe I'm coming from an emotional place, but this is just something that sits very uncomfortable with me. I think you have every right to be emotional <laughs> yeah. about this, about this uh, the status issue and your, mm-hmm. your your rights as an individual. And of course, we want to hear from Sumaya. So I'll, I'll stop interrupting. Sumaya, please. Back in university, where we were studying international politics, similar to Nadia, I took a class on citizenship and contemporary society and really started to think of what that meant globally and that, of course, locally for me. I think not only did it come to my attention that there was so little research on the topic of the Gulf, especially pertaining to people like Nadia and I, who grew up here, but also that there was such a binary understanding of the concept of citizenship. In the UAE, there are no direct pathways to citizenship. It does not provide citizenship through birthright, nor through naturalization. So even though my parents have lived in the country for over 30 years, and even though I was born and have resided here my whole life, we all still hold Indian passports. Passports of a country we no longer necessarily know, and definitely not one we feel like we belong to. I don't speak Hindi, my mother tongue, and can count on one hand how many times I've visited. It's very strange having grown up in a country and feeling such a strong sense of belonging to it, but having no legal claim to it, or feeling such a lack of reciprocity. Nadia and I are not alone in this. The subgroup of second-generation migrants are growing, but are stuck in the state of temporariness. I think we need to develop more critical and nuanced theories of the politics of belonging. And nationality and citizenship largely need to be understood as a shifting and dynamic form of membership, especially in such a globalized world and with the rate at which mass migration is currently taking place. I've said this to you offline as well, Dennis, but I genuinely believe that discourse and the human element in this country are so focused on either the vulgar spending of the elite rich or on the human rights issues of the labor workers in the Gulf. But really, the most quintessential person is the middle class migrant. And so, for my dissertation, I decided to try and close that gap in the literature and explore the cultural identity of second generation migrants in the UAE. And that's what got me roped into this topic. I think you both may have hit upon this, but, uh, but I do have a question, so I'll just pose it the way I, the, the way I constructed it. So it's a rather du- direct way of asking what we've been discussing, and that is, is the Gulf your home? Do you identify as a quote-unquote, and I have to put the scare quotes, citizen or quote-unquote resident of the Arab Gulf? Do you feel there's a disconnect between how you identify culturally and otherwise and what your passport says. So Nadia, again, I'd like to start with you. This is a tough question for me because I have a lot of conflicting emotions. I think if you asked me when I was 18 years old whether I would want to be a citizen of the UAE, I would in a heartbeat say yes. But I think as I've grown older, I have a more nuanced approach to this. Definitely there is a divide between how I culturally identify and what passport I hold. I struggle to identify as an Indian because I haven't spent too much time in India. And growing up, we would visit maybe once a year for maybe like a week or two just to see my grandparents. But at the same time, I cannot call myself an Arab. I am not an Arab. Even though I've spent most of my life in that region, I grew up there. And I think one of the reasons for this is whenever I am in the Gulf, I am constantly reminded that I am a temporary migrant. 
there is I think a conscious effort to separate the local population from the migrant population so you're always told you are a migrant that you will leave tomorrow no matter how many years you've stayed there already so while I do feel the gulf is my home at heart it is not something that is reciprocated it will always remind me it is not a place where I completely belong I'm not a citizen so it would feel disingenuous to stake a claim to it but I feel like I'm more than a resident too I will say that I feel local to the city in a multitude of ways it's not only that I've grown up here it's also that everything that's shaped me to be who I am today has been in the city and a large part because of this city too I can speak to the UAE's history and its development like the back of my hand and I feel pride towards it maybe even to a fault During my research one of the participants of my study that I interviewed went as far as saying that he would serve for this country Similarly others recall celebrating National Day every year on December 2nd and I do that too I do think that this level of patriotism from from essentially expatriates is unprecedented I also feel local to the UAE in a lot of ways that I don't feel towards India so I definitely think there is a disconnect between my cultural identity and what my passport says While there are aspects of Indian culture that I practice occasionally in Dubai, I felt like a tourist all the times that I have visited India. On a micro scale, when I'm in India, I'm often told by my relatives and friends to dress more Indian so I blend in better or look more inconspicuous when I'm there, or not to speak to strangers or sales vendors because they'll be able to tell from my accent that I'm not local. And of course, a lot of these sentiments are well-intentioned and are told to protect me from getting conned, etc. but they all feel like small slights telling me that i'm not actually indian i'm not actually from there and i do feel like i am different from an indian who actually grew up in india i don't speak like them i don't dress like them and i don't have the same experiences growing up as them i don't feel patriotic towards the same country they assumably would be but i can say that i am almost homogenous in that sense with anyone who grew up in dubai We can reminisce about what the city looked like 10 years ago, what a big certain event like the passing of a ruling family member felt like for us, where we were when we found out that Dubai won the bid for the Expo 2020. I talk like them, I dress like them. I frequent the same places they do. And to me, those are all markers for a culture. Now, both of you, Nadia and Sumaya, you're not just living these experiences. True to your callings, you're also both doing research on this complex topic. So bringing both of these together, your research as well and perhaps more important, your personal experiences, you find there's a desire between immigrant children to recognize or perhaps even to embrace the Gulf as their home, not temporarily as you say, rather than their technical or official or legal quote unquote home countries. Definitely in my research, the people I've spoken to, the conversations I've had with Sumaya as well, There are many 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 migrant children who definitely identify the Gulf as their home versus the place where their passports come from. Because just like me, we would visit our so-called home countries once in a while. Um but whether they can legally call the Gulf their home is a whole other issue itself. And uh, before I, before I turn it to, to turn to Sumaya, let me just give a shout out to Kerning Cultures. Um it's a podcast. I don't know if you discovered it first or I did, but I remember sharing it back and forth between you and me, you and me, Nadia. Um and it's one of their 
many episodes are on this very topic. So Kerning, K-E-R-N-I-N-G, yeah, mm-hmm. Kerning Cultures. So to our listeners, I encourage you to, to find them as well. So please, uh, Sumaya. I wanted to share two quick anecdotes from some of the interviews that I conducted while doing research on the topic. In one of my interviews, a respondent recalled that when she had briefly moved back to India to work, there was a particular instance where she was casually interacting with her Uber driver and speaking in Malayalam, which is the local language in the state of Kerala in India. The Uber driver had at one point made a passing quip that she spoke Malayalam well, but like a foreigner. Inversely, in another one of my interviews, a respondent told me an anecdote of when he was in studying in Boston, actually. He noted that he had a brief interaction with an Arab man who asked him where he was from. And when the respondent remarked that he was from Dubai, the Arab man questioned whether he spoke Arabic. When the respondent said no, the Arab man claimed that he could not be from Dubai if he did not speak Arabic. Not a lot of us speak Arabic. It's not needed in daily interactions or life in the city, and because of the sheer number of expats, it's often not enforced even in most bureaucratic situations. But I think this is why this story is so complex. It's a struggle of feeling like you belong neither here nor there. I do think that more than ever, there's an increasing number of this subgroup that are leaning into the local culture a lot more, and I think this is a way of trying to feel more like they can lay a claim to the city. I think this sentiment has especially grown within the last year or so. It's a bit confusing to try and explain this to someone who's never lived here, but there's a specific car in Dubai that carries a lot of significance and, well, status. The car is the Nissan Patrol. The Patrol is a significant car because of its ability to drive well in the desert, and because of the Bedouin culture and heritage, it's most commonly and kind of overwhelmingly driven by local Emiratis. But what we're seeing more and more is that a lot of second-generation migrants are purchasing this car and are exploring driving in the desert as a leisurely and sporting activity as well. I know I often go to the desert and participate in such activities. I think that these are small examples of ways in which migrants attempt to assimilate or interact with the cultural and heritage of this country by feeling like they can purchase a car or by partaking in an Emirati or local culture like driving the desert These are ways of accessing being local. They're ways to prove their locality in a way, to give it an alibi. Well, we just talked about this this next question. So let me let me just say I was going to ask, do you think many second generation immigrants uh, would want citizenship from Gulf countries? I think we've talked about that, but there's got to be a variety of perspectives on that very question. So there is definitely a divide. Um, There are those who do wish to call the Gulf their legal homes and This stems from an emotional attachment. They have fond memories, they have created a bond with the region, they identify with the culture. And a common phrase I've heard being repeated multiple times is, this is my home. But there are those who do not want citizenship from these countries. And I feel like they say this more out of defiance. They feel as migrants, we are treated as second class citizens or people in the region. And making that official would give the government a legal excuse to mistreat them further. And I think this argument also brings up an important point of what citizenship in the Gulf would even mean. The Gulf, as we know, is an authoritarian welfare state. But let's say migrants got the citizenship. Does that mean we would get the welfare benefits? Mm. I highly doubt that. And I don't even think the government could afford that. We currently in the UAE, we make up more than 80% of the population. 
um, I do not see how the government can continue funding the programs that they do for the nationals. And I think we should also keep in mind that the nationals themselves do not enjoy complete freedoms of citizenship, civil, political, mm -hmm. social. Yeah. So what would citizenship for migrants who are already seen as a class that's below the nationals, what would citizenship for us would even mean in that situation? Exactly as Nadia said, I have to preface this by saying that I do know that this is highly contested and also that there is a discord here. Nadia and I speak about this quite often, how there tends to be a sort of division when it comes to whether or not second generation migrants would want citizenship from Gulf countries. There are people who would, if offered the chance, snatch at the possibility of citizenship. However, like Nadia mentioned, there are a lot of people who have grown frustrated with the country that they often feel like hasn't treated them fairly for how much work, time and effort they've put in. As such, there are quite a few migrants, no matter how long they've been here, who choose not to take the citizenship and often do choose to leave the country and never return instead. I think I often like to toy with the idea that having grown up here feels like unrequited love. And there are two groups of people, one who grow frustrated and choose to no longer yearn for this person or well, the city's affection and leave instead. And the other who choose to desire it endlessly, even when there's no guarantee for reciprocity. I definitely fall under the latter category. I can't speak for which is right or wrong, but I think there's definitely a clear answer as to which is more likely the pragmatic decision. In previous conversations that the three of us have had offline, um, you've both expressed to me that you believe there isn't enough media coverage or, or research on this broad issue we're talking about. What would you like our listeners to know about, about that? Yes, yeah, something Sumaya and I have talked a lot about is when we've both been looking into this topic, doing our research in this topic, there's definitely a dearth of literature on what I like to term us as the silent majority. A lot of the literature that looks at migrants in the Gulf either focuses on the lower income construction workers or the maids that are employed by wealthy Arab families and how they're exploited by the kafala system. But what Sumaya and I want to highlight is this other subsect of the population. We are the children of economic migrants. Our parents were hired for skilled jobs. And yes, we were initially guest workers, but many of our parents have now lived in the region for 20, 30 years. But there is no pathway for us to permanently call these places our homes. And at this point, I looked at both the UAE and Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, we make up 88% of the population, while in Saudi, a little more than a third of the population. So we are a huge chunk, but nobody wants to talk about us. Nobody wants to refer to us. And this is definitely something Sumai and I want to highlight because we are part of this demographic. And I've said this to you, um, Nadia, before, um, and I may be inaccurate, uh, but... It, to me, it reminds me of the Dreamers and the DACA children. And, you know, again, I, uh, relating it to, the, I think one way to think about it for our listeners, and it's a, I don't know if it's a trick or it's a tool or it's something I always use in my classes is, you know, A, put yourself in the perspective, you know, put yourself in someone else's shoes. and But also see what's going on in our own country and see that there's a parallel. And it's a very, maybe it's a broad stretch, um, so we can talk about that that again another time, perhaps. But I just want to 
liken it to that sense of you all are dreamers in many ways, whether you dream of being citizens of these specific countries or you dream for, you know, a more rooted identity. Um, you still are dreaming for legal protections, much like dreamers are in the United States. Anyway, so back, back to back to Samaya. What I would want our listeners to know is that a large part of the reason that so many economic migrants move to the UAE to settle down and have families and children here instead of back in the country they hold a passport from is because there's confidence in the government here in which that isn't necessarily back in our legal home countries. I don't doubt that my parents' decision to move here has provided me with a quality of life that I'm not sure I would have gotten elsewhere, and I'm grateful for that. Over here, I've been able to lead a comfortable, safe and secure life, and if played right, there are a lot of ways in which the city rewards you for working hard in terms of moving up the socioeconomic ladder. I think the issue arises when we don't feel like our loyalty, if I can say, or the time and energy we express towards this country has been acknowledged by the state here. 30 years is a long time to live in a place and then be asked to feel no attachment. But yet my parents, once they retire, have to move back to India because they would no longer be issued a work visa. Similarly, it's quite painful for me that someone who has moved into the city just yesterday would hold the same documents and on paper looks the same as me. I would also want people to know that the media, and sometimes even the literature, doesn't paint the city in the light I wish it did. It is often seen as this vapid, glamorous city and overall in a sentiment in which it seems like a playground for the wealthy. But those accounts strip the city of its real character. And this, on this, again, this really important topic, do you think this, uh, do you think this is something Gulf countries are even talking about? Will, uh, are they acknowledging it? Or will they address it? Both yes and no. And I think you will get a different answer from Samaya. Mm. But I'm very cynical about it. I do think the Gulf countries are trying to address these issues in a variety of ways, but again, it also depends which Gulf countries. If we are going to compare Saudi's policies versus UAE's policies, they are different, but at the root, they are the same. One thing that I am scared about is, so one of the reasons our parents were able to come to these countries so easily is because the Gulf practices this open-door immigration policy because of the oil boom that happened in the 70s. I do think this, there is no longer an oil boom. This is the Mm -hmm. reality. And Gulf countries are struggling with their economies now. And I do think the first group that's going to be targeted is the migrant community. Mm. And I have a personal story uh, related to this. In 2007, when Dubai was hit by recession, it was hit by the recession really hard. And the first people to go were all the migrant families. My dad actually lost his job. Mm. Luckily, my mom was working, but I remember the time being super stressful because it meant my mom had to run to her company, ask if they could sponsor our entire family, wait for that visa to get approved. That whole moment was so stressful because I was in high school, my exams were around the corner, my parents were worried about schooling, about how we would pack up this house that had collected things from... 15, 20 years to pack everything and leave in a week. Luckily, things worked out for us, but for a lot of families, it didn't. And that just highlights how we're so disposable in the Gulf, even though we have built our entire lives in these countries and cities and in this region. Built your lives and helped them build an amazing economy as well. Exactly. 
I don't necessarily want to comment on this too much, but I do think that things are changing. Laws, at least in the UAE, are becoming more lax. Recently, they introduced a law that allows you to attain a visa through investing in property in the country. There's also a new visa option in place called a job seeker's visa, where you can reside in the country for six months if you're looking for employment. And also a new visa for a 10-year residency that has been made available for those who are high-skilled talent and contribute to the country's growth. Of course, none of these directly address the issue we're talking about today, and given the amount of money or education you'd need for either one of those visas makes it inaccessible for a lot of people. But this isn't a change that I expect to be linear, nor quick. For me, personally, I would really hope so. I'd hope that in the future there's a way for me to reside in this country sustainably, at the very least in the form of a permanent residency so I can call to buy home and not have that questioned. Well, what other solutions or strategies do you see in this arena other than those that might be introduced or carried out by governments? I guess what I mean is, are there any bottom-up ways of addressing this issue rather than top-down? For starters, uh, like Sumaya and I mentioned earlier, there's not enough literature on this. There's not enough media coverage on this. So I think the fact that we're even having this conversation even this platform that is allowing both Sumai and I to share our stories is a great way to begin because we're sharing our stories and hence we're highlighting these are real issues. These are the way we feel. These are the issues we face. At the same time, I do hope the government, if not citizenship, can work out a way to give us some sort of permanent identification mm-hmm. so that we can officially say the Gulf is our home. Yeah. Realistically, I don't believe that there is a bottom-up approach to this that can make any substantial legislative change. However, I do think that there are ways in which this is being addressed culturally. As I discussed earlier, there are many ways in which this new generation of migrants are leaning into Emirati culture in a way that hasn't been done before. This country, for example, has a growing arts and culture scene, one that was essentially non-existent just about five years ago. Not only is this often spearheaded by, but a lot of the work is being carried out and made by second-generation migrants, very similar to Nadia and I. I was discussing this with a friend of mine who's in the same situation as Nadia and I, and she had noted that whether for better or for worse, art cannot be removed from a country's narrative. Will this have any real legislative effect? Probably not, but it's important regardless. Is there anything else you think is important for our listeners to consider? I mean, we've talked about so many things, <laughs> but I know it's such an important topic. Um, you know, to, for the listeners to consider around citizenship rights for immigrants and immigrant children in, I mean, I mean a more broad, Middle East, North Africa might be too broad a topic. I think I'm happy to, to, to stay focused on, you know, your, your world, uh, the, the Arab mm-hmm. Gulf. One thing Samaya and I did talk about is we don't want to seem ungrateful to these Gulf countries. I mean, our parents moved there for economic reasons, and we are definitely in a position economically and socially because we were allowed to move to the Gulf and explore the options they give there. Definitely the UAE, especially when compared to Saudi, gives us a lot more social freedoms that sometimes maybe the, even the nationals don't get. Definitely in terms of religious freedom, I mean, very recently the UAE brought the Pope to Abu Dhabi, which was a big deal for my parents, who are practicing Christians. So there are ways 
the government it's not that they completely ignore us but i do feel the temporary identity that they give us needs to be addressed especially for migrant children who have grown up in this region i would implore our listeners to consider what it means to be from somewhere or to be local to a place and perhaps think about how much the idea of a nation is embedded into one's idea of self Migration, citizenship, and cultural identity are all complex topics, and situations pertaining to them are complicated everywhere. It would be interesting to question whether the relationship of the sentiments we spoke about today towards the Gulf have anything to do with social class. I think today we spoke about it largely from a middle-class perspective, and I think it would benefit us to explore how that changes when you move up and down the spectrum. With such little research, there's a lot to be explored in the region. All in all, I think the landscape of what it means to be from Dubai or from the Gulf is changing, and I hope that it molds itself in a way that fits us into its narrative. Well, I just want to thank you both for sharing your stories, your insights, your perspectives, your your ideas. This is just the start of the conversation, and uh, before I, before I sign off um, officially, I just want to encourage um, some, something you said earlier about uh, the need to just get the word out and. And it's not a word, uh, you know, we're not bashing the governments, as you said. We're just asking for rights. Uh, you were just asking for rights, and I think that's important. We're a small shop uh, on the move. The Be Cars podcast is a very small uh, shop right now. But for our listeners, uh, if, this, if this has touched you in any way, please share it widely. So let me, again, just thank you and Sumaya uh, for joining us today. We both would also like to say just thank you so much for giving us this platform and letting us highlight this issue and letting us talk about how important we think we deserve a place we can call home. Thank you once again, Dennis, for giving us the opportunity to share this story. I hope at the very least that this is the beginning of a conversation that has long since been on the backbone. Thank you for listening to On The Move. We will continue to feature perspectives with other regional experts on citizenship issues across the Arab region. We hope you will join us in exploring this topic. If you're not already, please follow us on our Facebook page. You can find us by searching Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies. You can also follow us on Twitter at bcars underscore Boston. And check out our website, bcars-global.org. That's bcars-global.org. If you'd like to support BCARS or join our network or give us feedback on our activities or publications, please contact me, Dennis Sullivan, at d.sullivan at northeastern.edu. Thanks again for listening.